0: the Jesus the Game Changer podcast from Olive Tree Media hosted by Carl Fays. In today's podcast, Carl's guest is the former Deputy Prime Minister of Australia, John Anderson. John shares from his experiences in politics and leadership at the highest level.
1: John, most people can remember where they were when the the Twin Towers went down in New York. You have a pretty unique story. Where were you? What were you doing at that time?
2: I was in Canberra dealing with uh... Uh, the failure of ANSET, the second Australian airline, and a refugee crisis uh, and acting Prime Minister at the time because uh, John Howard was in uh, uh, Washington at that very time. So I'll remember it very well. So what did they do with you? What did did you do? Such counter-terrorism arrangements as the country had ready uh, were tripped, put into place. Uh, All sorts of sites and uh, people around the place were secured, uh, to use the jargon, as best we could manage. Parliament House was cordoned off. I had to work from my motel room because uh, there was a real fear that it might have been the first of a series of rolling attacks and bombings and suicide missions around the world. And, of course, none of us really knew just what it all might have meant.
1: How did you feel? Like, how did you deal with that? Because there's a lot of pressure.
2: I suppose the answer is really that at that moment, I think perhaps more than any other moment in my life, Uh, I realised that uh, uh, there was no use grappling with my own feelings and concerns. I was on the bridge, no option to jump overboard and say, I wish I was back on the farm. There was a job that had to be done. I remember, uh, and I've been quite open about this, uh, praying for strength and for guidance and having an overwhelming sense of being able to put self-interest aside in order that I might, do to the very greatest of my ability what needed to be done. Because in a way, the recurring nightmare at that time was, with all of this information coming from all of our agencies, colleagues here and internationally, what if there's a bit of critical information that I somehow am responsible for missing and people die as a result? And I have to say, I assume that the very least there would be economic chaos chaos resulting, possibly military chaos. Um, and uh, that it would be uh, it's probably the end of my political career and possibly even the governments, but those were not things that you could concentrate on the time. There was a job to be done. And uh, I believed very strongly then, as I do now, uh, that in those circumstances, uh, uh, the right thing to do is to be prepared to bend your knee before the Almighty, mm. seek guidance, seek counsel. And in the end, um, whilst I think perhaps that moment might have been the end of postmodernism, I mean, it was the re emergence of real evil, uh, it's engaged us, I think, even with the real resistance from the progressives, in a debate about mega narratives again. Uh, I also think we may look back on it and say it really was a very serious moment for Western culture and civilisation. It exposed an awful lot of cracks and they've only
1: widened in many ways since. Going back, you spent a lot of time in politics, many years in politics. What, What drew you into politics? What was your motivation to get into politics?
2: Well, it's a good question really because I was a reluctant starter and wouldn't have seen myself as somebody who had... Um, a natural feel for it apart from the fact that I've always been fascinated by the cut and thrust of debate mm-hmm. exchange over ideas current affairs those things certainly interest me and I do I do love people and like to try and Have a positive impact on other people's lives uh, But the, the real answer I suppose is that the catalyst was being asked to run and then finding to my great surprise that uh, There was some support from people that I really respected, who said, look, you know, you've got to have a go at this. Service matters. And it's interesting that that was the approach. So for you, it was about service? Well, it has to be for me. Uh, You know, I think philosophically, if you say it's about self, you find yourself right at the very point where I think our culture is crumbling and where, in a sense, I seek to be counter-cultural I'm afraid. I think our society was built uh, by giants, we stand on their shoulders um, and the best of them have been men who, and women, who have not been consumed by pride, who have not bought into the modern line that it's all about you. It's interesting, really, that we live in a culture where, from a very early age on, our children are encouraged to believe they can have it all because it's about them. You see it in the advertising industry, buy this product, you deserve it. Look after the most important person in the world, you. Do you know, the amazing thing about that is that when voters see politicians behaving like that, in other words, living out the very value system that we tend to promote to our children as being the right one, they're repulsed by it. They actually understand at that point, no, wait a minute, we actually think service should
1: be about leader uh, leadership should be about service John give me a bit of a picture about what you think is is good political leadership you just talked about service and, and serving and you've worked with number of numbers of different leaders what did you see that was important in leadership
2: you know leadership really I suppose involves having a vision where you want to go where you think things need to be taken being able to articulate it to others so that they understand what the vision is and then having about you one way or another the qualities that will uh, get others to work with you to achieve that vision. Uh, but that vision might be for good or for ill. That's the problem. And we can, we can think of an Adolf Hitler. Uh, he had a horrific vision. He was certainly able to articulate enough of it, though, to be able to take people with him so that they were prepared to try and make that vision a, a reality. Uh, and so, um, you know, the antithesis of that, of course, is a, is a traditional Christian model of leadership. Uh, you know, where where the founder of Christianity was prepared to lay down his life for others, even if they weren't his friends. Uh, And so I've seen, uh, you know, people on various spots along that continuum. But the ones that I've admired most, there are several things I think I would note about them. One is they know that they stand on the shoulders of giants, big men and women who have gone before them. And so a wise man in that context will understand that if you read widely, if you're a student of history, you can actually bring the wisdom and the insights and the successes and the failures of men and women who have gone before us to the table for today. And if You know, We live in an age when everyone's looking for leadership and who's going to lead us to a better place and everything looks uncertain and there's enormous depression and anxiety and disillusionment amongst young people about uh, democracy itself. I would argue that one of the great problems is we don't know where we are because we don't know where we've come from. And if you don't know where you've come from and where you've got to, it's very hard to know where you might go to and the terrible risk is of course, uh, that you'll fall victim to the old adage that uh, uh, those who don't know
1: history are destined to repeat it. John, do you believe the teaching of Jesus and the the Christian church, has that influenced Western democracies? Massively, foundationally.
2: You know, the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, uh, as Jonathan Sachs uh, from the House of Lords, Chief Rabbi of England has pointed out, uh, they established that in fact Christianity really lay at the heart of the rise of Western civilization. Isn't it amazing that uh, you know, a communist regime in China can come to that conclusion when in the West we now have a whole lot of trite voices running around the place really often not having a vague idea of, uh, you know, of what they're talking about, uh, proclaiming that Christianity has been a negative force and held us back. In reality, of course, the radical heart of Christianity where it crosses over Um, into the public square realm is the extraordinary idea that every individual has worth and dignity. That the poor, the weak, the oppressed, those of a different skin colour, whatever, it doesn't matter. Uh, You know, the king must respect the peasant just as the peasant has to respect the king. That's radical. It lies at the heart of the idea of the rule of law, of the vote. As one American put it, we're so good we had to give ourselves the vote, we're so bad we had to give ourselves a vote, reflecting our dual nas- uh, 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 personality. Um, created in the dignity uh, of, of, of God, flawed by our own selfishness and our own desire to do things our own way. How do we balance the two out? Uh, the Western genius has been defined that in democracy and in, in the vote. Um, but you can go much further than that. Uh, our Western social conscience I would argue derives from uh, the uh, Christian movement to free the slaves. We rightly regard slavery as abhorrent today but at the time that Australia was settled, which isn't very long ago in the scheme of human affairs, the American um, academic Hothschild argues that three quarters of the world's population were either serfs or slaves. That's staggering to us Uh, You know, they had no economic or political or personal freedom. The whole idea of slavery, though, was tackled by the Christians in uh, that great movement in the revival times uh, when there were many, many Christians in public life, and, and the greatest human rights movement of all times evolved. So it's been massively influenced, and an extraordinary amount of what we now take for granted in terms of the way we view others, the way we think that the less fortunate and so forth have to be looked after and so forth, they have their genesis in the unique idea that derives from the Bible that we should treat our neighbour as ourselves. What other culture, what other creed has taken it forward in the way that the Christian West did? not saying the Christian West is perfect, far from it. It's had some appalling moments of terrible slip-ups. But on balance, what sort of society do most people in the world want to live in today? It's the Western capitalist democracies. They either want to move there or they want a model like that in their own homeland. What an irony that you know we live in an age when our own academics, our own intellectual, our own intelligentsias, those who dominate the debate in the public square, want to rubbish and demolish and, introduce and and encourage us to self-loathe our own achievements. And that which we don't understand, that which we pervert, that which we distort, we're in
1: danger of destroying. Mm. Our children and our grandchildren will not thank us for it. I actually want to go back to the, the leadership question, John. You, you were at the, the kind of peak of Australian politics, which has a lot of power and a lot of prestige. And how did you stay grounded? in that period of time? How'd you stay a, a grounded person? How'd that not get, go to your head or, or your personality? Well, it's kind of you to assume that it didn't.
2: <laughs> I think philosophically, I had a deep commitment to the view that I have no special standing before God, that other human beings don't have. You know, um, in one sense, you see, if I'm fortunate enough to have some talents or gifts or whatever that equip me for that role, That's not to my credit. It's to be used wisely for others. If there are others who don't have those abilities, I I have no grounds for despising them or condemning them or for looking down on them. But there are a lot of practical lessons that you learn as well going through life. I remember working as a mechanics laborer when I was a university student, and realizing that one of the young fellows that I was assigned to work with by the boss, if he'd had my educational opportunities in life, he'd have been a brain surgeon. It was a humbling experience, and I never forgot it stood me in good stead. You know, uh, in the words of a pretty silly little song I once heard, be kind to little guy on your way up or you'll meet him on your way down.
1: (laughs) So there was a kind of perspective in in working with that guy who was a mechanic who you thought the guy's incredibly intelligent.
2: I just realised that he had talents uh, and skills latent that hadn't been drawn out. Uh, That... um, you know, put into perspective I suppose the opportunities that I'd had and made me realise that I'd been fortunate
1: but I couldn't take credit for it. Did you see humility and the concept or or the virtue of humility much in just politics in general, in leadership in general?
2: Well I think uh, what I would say is that the leaders that I knew and admired most knew at least the importance of keeping hubris in check. They understood it was important. The degree to which they succeeded in that, well, you know, I don't know. I think all men grapple with pride. To some extent, uh, some are better at hiding it than others. But it does lie at the heart of nearly every human problem that I can think of, if not every one of them. And I think it was Lewis who said uh, the problem with pride is it prevents us from looking up to an exterior reference point, an external reference point, or God. um, And it makes us look down on other people so we don't see them as fully worthy human beings, uh, you know, on our own level. And, uh, uh, you know, there's an awful lot of the world's ills that can be traced, I think, to the problem of pride. So philosophically, I've always had a view uh, that, um, you know, it's something you want to try and work on. The problem with it is uh, that the minute you think you're making uh, progress, you know you're not.
0: We hope you're enjoying this podcast. Olive Tree Media seeks to introduce people to Jesus, communicate a Christian worldview, and transform beliefs, attitudes, and lives through media. Now let's get back to the interview.
1: I want to go to that whole question of of church and state and you know there's a lot of talk about separation of church and state as somebody that was involved in politics but with a faith background what do you think that means separation of church and state
2: i think it means that the institutions if i can put it that way should be separate you know i don't think the church should ever have temporal power Uh, but that's not to say that individuals from the church shouldn't have um, an opportunity to participate in the public square in fact i'm absolutely 100 percent convinced that our society would have been infinitely the poorer and because these are not our new debates uh, William Wilberforce, uh, who really headed up the greatest human rights movement of all times, was subject to people like Lord Melbourne scoffing you know things have come to a pretty pass when religion's allowed into the, you know, the public debate well imagine how much poorer we would have been if there hadn't been the anti-slavery movement if there hadn't been the attempt to uh, Force the British East India Company highly successful attempt to force them to behave in India and to start to educate people, set up schools and teach them how to run a country and oppose evils like the burning of widows. Um, that same movement was responsible for a great deal of political reform and for education of the poor in Great Britain and it was all put forward by people who were saying I'm not operating out of philosophy or out of intelli- you know, intellectual commitments to ideas. We're doing it out of Christian faith. So th- and, and, you know, the really important point here is we stand on the shoulders of giants. We've got to the point that we don't even know who the giants were, let alone what they struggled with, what they struggled against, what they fought for, how they succeeded, and how it made the world a better place. We put ourselves in a very dangerous position by not understanding our history, because the old adage is true. Those who forget the lessons of history are destined to repeat those mistakes.
1: So the institutional separation, how how do you see that working? So that that there's a kind of a a wall between the two?
2: Look, um, uh, in the sense that I don't believe it's appropriate for there to be such things as state churches or for churches to have positions reserved for them in politics, that alone for churches to run societies. I actually believe that the mission of the true church is is higher anyway. Uh, The founder of Christianity himself has stewed politics. uh, He made it very plain that he was not going to live by the sword. And in fact, one of the tests, I think, of true Christian behaviour is that violence is never used to defend Jesus Christ or the Christian faith, ever. It may be used to oppose evil. That's a different thing. The case for legitimate... Uh, and uh, what was quaintly called once, I think, Holy Wars, uh, although they've been abused as well. But you know something's seriously wrong if somebody is exercising violence uh, in the name of Jesus Christ in defence of the faith. Uh, I believe, in a sense, you see, that civilizations come and civilizations go, they rise, they fall. That eternal truths remain forever.
1: Where, where you've kind of touched on this a little bit, but in, in the, the teaching of Jesus, where and the teaching of Jesus in the Bible and, and those things that some people say, look, that's religious, that should be outside of politics. Where are the places that you've seen it where it steps into politics in a really positive sense and has a, a deeply influential um, action into the into the political realm? Well, in
2: history, they're everywhere. Mm. whether it was the, uh, the whole anti-slavery movement, the really serious engagement in international evils like the burning of widows right across the Indian subcontinent, whether it was um, uh, picking up the idea of educating the poor. I mean, it was Christians who insisted to the Scottish Parliament as early as 1695 that all children ha- should have an education. It was Christians who set up the schools that the states eventually, governments eventually took over So that's history, but even today, just to draw one of those out, I remember back uh, after I'd stepped down as Deputy PM, uh, it was the Christians who were agitating that we take seriously again the horrific issue of slavery that hasn't been killed off. We thought it had, but it hasn't. We now know there's somewhere between 20 and 30 million in slavery, much of it sex slavery, around the world. That is horrendous. Now, as a proportion of the global population, it's a fraction of what it was once because of the work that Christians have done. But we haven't killed it off completely. And so you find Christians at the forefront of that movement again. There are others who are not Christian, just as there were others drawn into it in the 17th and 18th century. But, you know, much of that work is being spearheaded again by people of faith
1: we see the kind of really positive side of, of democracy and I think Western democracies is a very has a very positive uh, way of influencing life across across the world. What do you think needs to be in a community for democracy to stand as a robust, positive democracy?
2: Ah, humility. The humility that says my neighbour does matter and I should treat them as I would choose to be treated. The idea that we can all be uh, you know, kings under ourselves, we can all have complete freedom to behave absolutely as we choose, that's not freedom. That's the law of the jungle. And when that sense of responsibility to others and to community breaks down, and involved in that, of course, is the willingness to seek to be honest and true. We all fail. But when that concept goes, and I have to say in a society like ours, I'm not quite sure where it's going to come from when so few people are going to church regularly and being reminded that they're responsible to a higher authority and to their neighbours, I'm not quite sure in that uh, sort of society in the future in the West, just where we're going to find the wellspring of commonality, of commitment to decency and to our society and to our neighbour that I think democracy is absolutely dependent upon. And the American forefathers, for example, they got it big time. They made it plain that they understood that the American democratic experiment would last only so long as people were genuinely civically minded. So often today when people talk about involvement in politics they essentially mean destructive protesting involvement. And you could never do it of course and I wouldn't want to be understood to be trying to restrict people's freedoms. But I reckon it would be handy if we tried to set up a a little uh, sort of agreement in our society, you want to go and protest something, earn the right by pointing to something that you've done that was positive for others first. So often we now confuse democratic involvement and activism. They're
1: different. That's such an interesting concept that, that democracy giving us freedom helps us kind of grow as a society, gives us lots of opportunities. But for that to, to be created, we actually have to take a step back and not demand what we want for ourselves all of the time. Well, it must. You see, If
2: my freedoms are bought at the expense of your freedoms, sooner or later we're going to end up in conflict. And one's going to win, and by definition someone's going to lose. We have to have a sense of commitment to others, a sense of responsibility to others, particularly to the weak and the poor, because it's our essential instinct to be selfish. And perhaps it's that that Christianity brings it so unique, an explanation of, frankly, our problem, which is our selfishness. Uh, And if you like, um, the exhortation, and I would argue the means, to overcome it and to put it to one side, recognizing the selflessness of a Christ who died on the cross in order that he might be reconciled even to his enemies. That's a very high, high bar. But we live in a culture where even the concept's not understood, where we don't even talk about it. So, you see, we're rapidly getting to a point where people are so biblically illiterate and so historically illiterate that they can't understand our own culture. And we're having to rely on people like the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, reporting to the atheists in Beijing, to understand the origins of our own society. That's extraordinary. And I would argue it's very dangerous. And if I would have a plea to make to people, I would say to them, don't be mockers, go out and actually make sure you really do understand where your freedoms came from and what's required to keep them.
1: John, I just want to kind of explore a bit of your own life because, you know, people look at you and you've had a good life, you've got a great family, wonderful farm, wonderful a political career, but it hasn't always been particularly easy. What were the hardest points for you and how did faith influence those? What were the times where you kind of questioned faith, questioned life, questioned your future?
2: Well, I'm no stranger to tragedy. My mother died of cancer when I was very young, undiagnosed. Uh, I was only three. Uh, My sister was killed in a sporting accident when I was a teenager. and uh, so forth. Uh, And I don't like dwelling on those things. Indeed, a journalist once said uh, that I dwelt on them. That was nonsense. It wasn't known about until I'd been in Parliament for a long time and then a newspaper chose to reveal something of my life story. But they do shape you. There's no doubt about that. I think when my sister was killed, and I've, I've, I've actually met and talked with other kids who have been in a similar situation where you know, uh, there's been a horrendous accident and you felt a degree of responsibility for it. As a teenager, your childhood ends and you've got to ask the big questions. And I remember thinking, well, I can become black and despairing about all of this or I can try and believe that in the midst of all of this someone's in control and has an endgame to play. That's a hard choice. I can understand why people grapple with it. I can understand that. But I, for me couldn't live with the black answer, that it was all purposelessness, it was all an accident, it was all meaninglessness. In other words, that particularly coupled with my sort of schoolboy understanding of existentialism, uh, you know, uh, was too dark a world for me
1: to want to live in. Some people would say that, th- that tragedy means that they decide that there isn't a God yes. because tragedy happened. You're saying almost the opposite, that in the midst of the darkness, that pushed you to yes. a point of belief and faith?
2: Yes, it did, because the darkness is so dark. If it really is meaningless, if it really is pointless. You know, um, uh, so for me, it took me back to ask those hard questions. I think, like most people, I believe there was a God. So the question was, well, God, why are you doing this, rather than you can't be there? I don't think that answer for me stacks up. So then God, why do you do this? Will you come up then against the problem of a fallen world? They're big concepts. I can understand why people grapple with them. I don't want to take them lightly. I just want to say, I can't go down the dark road of there being no answer, uh, that the no point, that it's all just empty despair. I have to believe that there will in the end be justice and there will be mercy, that it all makes sense and that things will be put right.
1: Was that a kind of uh, a a place in your life where it was like, um, I don't know how to put this almost, that it was almost begrudgingly, okay, that's the way it is? Or was there there much hope in that or was it that's the way it is? You know, like what's the kind of line between a hopeful future and a begrudging acceptance? Uh,
2: Well, I don't know that's an easy answer, a question to answer. I don't know that that's an easy question to answer. I think for me, when I finally as a university student decided that it had to be true, that I couldn't make any sense of the world in the absence of a mega narrative that explained the human condition, the glory and the scum, Pascal said, the magnificence of a human being at their best, the dreadfulness of a human being at their most depraved, and the awareness that, to some extent, the fight between good and evil is going on inside myself. I needed answers for that. And I had to believe in the noble answer. And I still do, intellectually. I can't live with despair, and I think as a farmer, perhaps I'm influenced a bit by working, you know, in the outdoors and so forth, I simply can't believe it's all an accident. I just can't. I cannot look at creation. Can't look at the changing seasons. I can't look at the way things grow. I can't look at an animal being born and think this is all just some statistical freak. I can't do it. Doesn't make sense to me. So I'm with Timothy Keller. Christianity is both uh, uh, intellectually um, understandable and existentially satisfying the alternatives to me are frankly pretty bleak. Eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow you die. Well we now know there's a lot of older men committing suicide. They live their lives, they eat, they drink, they're merry in a, in a wealthy and prosperous society and a few years before it's all over but they realise how empty it really is. When I look at the magnificence of the human spirit at its best I can't believe it was meant to be empty. I can't believe it was meant to be uh, pointless and directionless.
1: John, this series is called Jesus the Game Changer. How, for you, is Jesus the Game Changer? Well,
2: I think for me, uh, he's the Game Changer in the same way as I think he has been the Game Changer when societies have been influenced by an understanding of who he is. Uh, and, And in that sense, you see, it's at the point of the cross that perfect justice and perfect love meet. And I don't think you can have love without justice because it's meaningless. And I don't think you can have justice without love because it'll never be just. And so the answer to the human conundrum, the problem of good and evil, and who am I? And how do I make sense of it? It's found in Jesus Christ.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to support the radio, video and podcast ministry of Olive Tree Media, you can donate online at olivetreemedia.com.au and click on the Donate button in the top right corner. We accept both tax-deductible and non-tax-deductible donations. Thanks for listening.